All flesh is as grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's give our attention once more to God's word. As we do, let me ask, did that improve the sound some? Yes. You hear me better? You're coming through just fine now. Thank you. Great, great. Well, our scripture passage you'll find in your copy of the liturgy, today's liturgy, um, our text for the sermon is taken from the book of James. We'll be reading James chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Let's give our attention to God's word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I wonder if there are any kids who are worshiping today who are on the call. Um, Kids, there are some fantastic metaphors, fantastic word pictures in this text. And I wonder if you have experienced some of these things so that you can understand them. Have your parents or someone uh, ever taken you to the coast and and let you um, wade in the water there? If you have, you've probably tasted that water. Either it splashed on you or maybe you dipped your fingers in it. What did that water taste like? It was very, very salty. 
And there's another uh, picture here of a ship. Have you ever seen a ship? Uh, maybe you've actually on one of the rivers there seen one of the big boats or maybe off the coastline you've seen a ship, but but I'm sure on maybe uh, shows or videos on the internet you've seen a ship. Recently, I saw a video of a huge ship, so big it had numerous shipping containers, those big trailers that we see driving with tr trucks, driving these big trailers on the interstate. This ship had probably stacked 10 high and numerous, just end after end after end. And it was going through a very rough sea so, so that some of those containers actually fell in the ocean. It was an enormous ship. Well, this text that we've just read that we're going to consider together, it talks about ships. So as we're listening, you're going to have an opportunity to think about how big a ship is. And also this text talks to us about horses. Have you ever seen a horse in person? Uh, some horses are so big that the back of the horse is as tall as a grown man and the the horse's shoulders are so thick with muscles, they wouldn't be able to go through the door to our house. And they're so powerful, they can pull great weights. This passage that we've just read in God's Word is going to talk to us about horses. And it's going to talk to us, kind of, about zoos. Have you ever been to the Portland Zoo? I've actually been to the Portland Zoo once. I saw elephants. I love seeing the elephant exhibit at the Portland Zoo. And at the zoo, you'll find all sorts of wild animals. And God has given human beings sufficient power and ability that even though these animals are so wild, people are able to take them into captivity and keep them in something like a zoo. Well, the text is gonna talk about that too. And the text, especially the text that was read to us earlier, is going to say some scary things. And I want you to listen even to the scary parts. But as you listen, I want you to know this. And I hope you already know this. You can trust God. And you know that you can trust God because of Jesus. You can trust Jesus, even with the scariest things, even if you were on a great ship in a terrible storm and things were beginning to fall overboard, you could trust Jesus. And even if a huge, massive horse were barreling down on you, even if you were that scared, you can trust Jesus. And when we read God's word, especially, even if they're scary things, you can trust Jesus. So we're going to talk about this text I've just read together. And we're going to see how it teaches us to trust Jesus, okay? So when we come to those parts, I want you to think about what the ocean tastes like. And I want you to think about how big horses are and how big ships are and what it's like to see wild animals. And I want you to be listening for what this text is going to teach us about trusting Jesus. Can you do that? Well, um, as all of us think about this text together, there's a danger that some of us, especially the adults, might make. This text opens with this instruction, not many of us, brothers, should be teachers. And we may think of it um, the way I think about being a doctor. So yesterday I had a chance to ride my bicycle at some trails where I love to ride. And you may know from the last time I was with you guys that about six months ago I had a really, really bad accident um, that led to a terrible injury. And so yesterday when I was riding, I met these two young men who were, uh, have just become third year medical students. They've just finished their second year and 
<clears throat> they thought it was kind of cool to get to meet me because they had been following my case and they thought, wow, we get to ride with this guy. And I thought, wow, I, I think it's neat to meet them. I get to ride with these guys because after my crash, I was helped by numerous doctors and nurses. And I have an increased appreciation for all the years and years of training and practice those people have to go through in order to be helpful to people like me. And some doctors are surgeons. And one of the things that they have to do is they have to spend lots of time practicing and practicing and practicing so they can take a scalpel, a very sharp knife, something that in the hands of an unskilled person would be an instrument of destruction. They spend lots of time practicing so they can make a scalpel, an instrument of healing. And this text that we've just read talks a lot about our tongue, about our speech. And because it opens by saying not many of us should be teachers, meaning not many of us should be elders, we may think, oh, this isn't for us. This is just for those guys. But it's not because while in one sense, the tongue is like a scalpel in that it can do great harm or it can do great good. In another sense, it's not like a scalpel because scalpels are just for surgeons. But learning to use our tongue as an instrument for peace is something God calls all of us to do. So the big idea that I hope we take away from our time considering this text is that we must all learn to make our tongue an instrument of peace. We must all learn to make our tongue an instrument of peace. And we're going to we're going to learn why and how as we consider what the text has to say about the power of the tongue and the problem of the tongue and the potential of the tongue. So let's consider each of those parts. First, the power of the tongue. If you look at um, verse three, James says, think about a big old horse, how large and powerful and much stronger than us they are, yet we put a bit in their mouth so that we can guide them. The whole horse guided by something that's small enough to hold in a man's hand. The same way, look at great ships. Think about those big ships on the sea that can survive those powerful storms and can carry such enormous amounts of goods. Those enormous ships are guided by a very small part. A ship's rudder is only about 2% of the amount of boat that's under the water, let alone all of the ship that's above water. All of that stuff is guided by a very, very small part. Well, just like a bit, small bit can guide a big, powerful horse, and a small rudder can guide a big, powerful ship, a huge ship the size of a small town. So also the tongue guides us. It accomplishes very significant things. The text says it boasts of great things. And the word boast there is not being used in the way we normally use it. It's being used in a way that we less seldom use the word boast. Um, so <clears throat> that was a very kind introduction, but you have a modest 
a speaker of modest accomplishment today, but if we had a really fancy accomplished speaker, we would say, and today's speaker boasts of numerous degrees and so on and so forth. And what we would mean by that word is not that he makes an empty claim that he has those degrees, but that he has those accomplishments. And here James is saying the tongue has accomplished very significant things. Even though it's a small part, it does incredibly powerful things. So that's the first thing we need to see about what James is saying about our tongue. He's going to go on to speak to the power as he speaks to the problem. So even though our tongue is powerful, and maybe because it's so powerful, it actually causes for us a big problem. In the last part of verse five, it says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, you guys live in Oregon, and so not only do you have rainy season, a long rainy season, and a beautiful dry season, but you also have fire season, do you not? I lived in Oregon for a little while, and I understand that last year, some of the fires got very close to where you live. Uh, one friend said where he lived all week, maybe more than a week, the sky was gray and the air was hazy from all the smoke from the fires that were so close, huge, enormous fires. You know way better than my friends here in Mississippi what a big fire is like. And think about this. Every big fire, no matter how big it gets, it started by something very small. And James says, we've got a problem. Our tongue is like that. Just like a giant forest fire, thousands and thousands and ten thousands of acres burning is set by a small fire. So our tongue is a fire. And it is itself, it's a whole world. It's a whole world, what kind of world? Of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members and it stains our whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of our life. Now, those of us who are a little bit older, we know how powerful the tongue is. We've probably heard stories of people who went into their career because some of them, some, someone praised them. They wrote a paper in junior high and their teacher said, you are a very good writer. And they became an author because of that one praise they received. And we all perhaps even personally know how powerful words can do harm. Many of us have wounds that we carry even today. It's, Grown people, people who have been adults for decades, we have sore places from words that were said to us in anger. But James is not saying the tongue has the ability to wreck your life when daddy speaks angrily. It's saying your tongue has the ability to set the course of your life on fire. It's not merely that other people's tongues can set the course of your life on fire. Your tongue, the way you use your tongue, the way I use my tongue, it sets the whole course of our life on fire. And this fire is from hell. Our tongue is a whole world by itself. It's a world of unrighteousness. It burns with the fire of hell. That's scary stuff. And it gets scarier. Because in verse 7, it says, you can go to a zoo. And you can see that every kind of wild beast, every kind of reptile, every kind of fish, 
you can see that man has the ability to tame wild animals at least enough that they will remain in their captivity. But no one can tame the tongue. So again, he's showing us something about its power, but also it's a big problem. The tongue is so powerful, no one can tame it. And that's a terrible thing because this, the tongue is like something set on fire from hell. The way we use our tongue, our speech, is a whole world of unrighteousness. It corrupts all of us, every bit of us. And it's a restless evil. It never is satisfied with what it's destroyed so far. It keeps going and keeps going. It's full of deadly poison. It never runs out of ability to hurt. It hurts others and it hurts us. And it's an abomination. It's grotesque. It's sickening. Look at how James describes that. Verse 9, he says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. He says, this is, this is a horror. This is an abomination. This is revolting. It's disgusting. It says such things ought not to be. Did you catch his logic? He's saying, People are made in the image of God. Therefore, when we curse people, we are cursing God's image. It's impossible for us to say we bless God if we are also cursing people. It's, a, it's blasphemous. It's an abomination. It should not be. Verse 11, a couple of final comparisons. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? So if you could, if you go on a hike and you go to a waterfall, if you could climb up over the waterfall and you could hike and hike and hike and hike and hike and you could follow a stream all the way back to its source and you found bubbling up out of the rocks, a little trickle of water that becomes a stream that other streams flow into and becomes this big creek and maybe even a river. If you go back to the very source where the water is bubbling out of the ground, it would either be salty or fresh. It, it can be both. Like a fig tree, we're almost to the time of year for figs. And already here in Mississippi, the fig trees are, um, they've got their big giant leaves. Have you ever seen a fig tree? They have huge, huge leaves. And then they have blossoms and the figs begin to bud. And a little later this summer, we'll have figs, which become fig preserves. One of the best inventions known to man. But I never go to the fig tree and find olives or apples or oranges or cucumbers. And a grapevine doesn't produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. My oldest daughter is at school at a place called Gordon College. It's up around Boston. It's almost all the way by the ocean. And my wife and I went with her last August to help her move in. And so we got to do a little sightseeing together. And I don't know if you've ever traveled to the Boston area. If you get a chance, you should go to the sea and see uh, what the ocean looks like there. It's very different from the Oregon coast. Both are beautiful. One of the things that's interesting about the sea there near Boston is there are all these salt marshes, beautiful marshes. They look kind of like some areas here in Mississippi where you would maybe see if you were really quiet and it was early, you might see a deer at the edge of the water drinking, but you would never see a deer drink from one of these because they're salty. They're full of ocean water. No one could go 
dip a pail into that and draw out water that was fit for drinking. And James is saying our tongues are like that. If there's any evil, there's just evil. They're not salty and fresh. They don't grow figs and olives. And it shouldn't be this way. This is the problem because James is speaking in absolute terms. He says that this is the reality for all of us. And yet, having told us that the tongue is so powerful and the tongue is such a problem, James now speaks in a way that shows us even so there is potential for our tongues. So let's see how he shows us that in verses 13 through 18. James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, it's always important whenever we read anything, you, you don't just pick up a page that's been torn out of a book and, and trust that you understand what you're reading. You know that if you're going to read a part of something, you need to understand a little bit about the whole. You have to understand the context. Well, if you, if you actually have a Bible open, you can see the context of what we've read today. In chapter 2, um, James says those famous words, uh, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? You show me your faith um, apart from your works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. And then the last verse of chapter 2, James says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James has been talking about the nature of genuine faith, that works come from it. That if, you, if there are no works, no good works in a person's life, consistent, the, the kind that God calls good works. If you don't see any of that in a person's life, you should be concerned for that person. That is not an indicator of genuine faith. Just like if I go to the fig tree later this summer and there are no figs, that would be a, a concerning sign that that fig tree is not healthy, that it's losing its life. So it's in the context of James discussing genuine faith and works flowing from that, that he has brought up this whole thing. And, 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 and looking back a little bit further into the context, in chapter one, James has already spoken of wisdom. And he has spoken of wisdom after saying these famous words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is saying, hey, guys, here's a really important principle. For those of us who have faith in Christ Jesus, we need to recognize our faith is going to be tested in all sorts of trials. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. And we should actually learn to have joy even in the trials and be appreciative for them because God is at work. Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness produces an effect. It actually, it's through the steadfastness of our faith. God is at work perfecting us, making us into the finished product. And then he says, if anyone la lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. So he's saying this kind of life, it, it takes wisdom. So now in chapter three in our text, James is saying, so if someone thinks he has wisdom, if he has faith in Christ and is living 
um, in a way that's consistent with that faith. That's what he means by if anyone has wisdom, who is wise and understanding by, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So this is James' first little uh, speech about conduct after saying our faith must have works. The first work that he speaks of is our speech. This whole thing that we've been reading about our tongue, about our speech. James is saying, this is the first thing. When I say you need to show your faith by your works, that's going to happen, first of all, by your speech. If anyone is wise and understanding, let him show it by his good speech. Let him show his works in his speech and the meekness of wisdom. And then what's more, a warning, verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And here James is using the word boast in the other sense, the one we more commonly use, the sense of it's just an empty claim. It's just ridiculousness. It's silliness. James says, don't boast of wisdom and faith if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. And now James is showing us where the root of the problem lies. Our hearts are the source of this hellfire, which is our tongue. James isn't making this up. Jesus himself said as much in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. So James has said our tongue defiles all of us. It's because what comes out of our mouth comes from the heart, Jesus says. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. James here is saying the same thing. In verse 18, excuse me, in verse 15, he says, look, jealousy, selfish ambition. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's of this world. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. This is not the work of the Holy Spirit. This is demonic. And he says what Jesus said in Matthew. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So here he's warning us even further about the great problem of our tongue. Not only can no one tame it, but it will lead to every vile practice, ungodly speech, using our speech in a manner that is inconsistent with what God calls us to, is going to lead to disorder in every part of our life. And it's going to lead to every vile practice because ungodly speech stems from an ungodly heart. It's our hearts which are evil, and therefore our tongues are evil. But praise God, this is not where James ends. Verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. James has already said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. In our Old Testament scripture reading, 
God promised this. So we read of the problem of evil people in Zephaniah 3, and we read not only of how it sets the course of this life on fire, but the evil of our hearts and tongues incurs God's wrath. God has, in Zephaniah 3, said he will pour out his indignation, all of his burning anger. And yet he also says this, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day shall not be put to shame because of the deeds you have rebelled against me, by which you've rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my, only, in my holy hill. God has promised to do a miracle. He said to his people of old, you're guilty. You have evil hearts. Your kings and judges, your officials and judges, essentially your kings, they're evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Your prophets are fickle. Your priests profane what is holy. Those who are meant to govern and make sure that uh, right uh, is done. Those who are meant to speak the truth. Those who are meant to teach us to love what is holy and good, they've all, they've all failed us. They've done evil. And we are meant to be prophets and priests and kings. We're meant to say what is true, and good. We're meant to worship God rightly, to love him, to love his ways. We're meant to then make decisions and choices and, and rule our lives in a manner that is consistent with his law. We have all failed. God says, you've rebelled against me. And yet, to these very people that he says, you've rebelled, he says, there's a day in which you will not be put to shame. He says to people like us who have evil tongues that can't be tamed, he says, I will change your speech to a pure speech. Now, how has God done that? How are we to walk in the wisdom that's from above? First of all, by recognizing that it is God who's done it, that we are to rely upon a miracle. Um, Jesus also spoke of a vine. So James talks about grape vines not growing figs. Jesus spoke of a vine. He said, I am the vine and you are branches. But later, and he, he was talking about, um, later Paul will talk about Israel, God's people being a vine, but he will also say in one passage that not everyone who was ethnically of ancient Israel was actually part of true Israel. Jacob I love, Esau I've hated. So what we see is a miracle has to happen. Something that is not of the vine has to be grafted in to become part of the vine. And Christ and his apostles say that that's being offered to us, that we would be grafted into Christ, the vine. And we're told that that happens by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus, that it's through Jesus that God 
gives us forgiveness for our sins and that God gives us pure speech. Because what did Jesus do? Why did God send Jesus? He sent him to secure for his people a righteousness they lacked. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. And also to make a sacrifice, to be the high priest that all the other priests were merely little pictures of. Jesus on the cross offered the only sacrifice which can truly take away the guilt of sins. And when the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus, not only are we adopted into God's family, like branches grafted in, but we're in Christ twice over. We're also given new birth. God gives us life by his spirit. We become something new, no longer what we were, truly something new. So we're his children twice over by birth and adoption. So how do we walk in wisdom? First of all, trusting not our own efforts, but trusting a miracle, trusting that God has changed us, that he's delivered us from the guilt of our sin. And he is in an ongoing way, the fancy word of sanctification, in an ongoing way, he's delivering us from the pollution of our sin, changing us from this abominable state where we bless God and curse people into a pure state. Won't, won't be there perfectly until the life that's to come, but we will be there. So first thing is we rely upon this miracle. The second thing is we repent. In the Old Testament, there's a word in ancient Hebrew that's used that gets translated repent in English, but it's just the word for turn. So when we read about how powerful our tongue is and what a problem it is, we don't merely stop the sinful practice of ungodly speech. We turn. It's not enough to stop. We turn. We take up the godly practice. What does it mean for our speech to be pure and gentle and sincere and open to reason and peaceable and full of mercy? Well, the Bible tells us that. Just very quickly, think of how Proverbs teaches us about the way we're supposed to speak. Uh, one proverb says a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. In another place is a proverb that says a harsh word stirs up anger, but soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs chapter 31, a very famous description of a godly woman. Even in that, we see in the response of her children and her husband and the city leaders, a godly use of speech. What do they do? Her children and her husband call her blessed. Her husband praises her. Let her works bring her praise in the city gates. One of the ways that we're to use our speech is we're to praise what is praiseworthy. And particularly with the members of our house, household, we're to use our speech to affirm them and to encourage them and to praise them when it's appropriate to do so. Deuteronomy 6, parents, we're to teach our children all the time, be teaching. So you see, though we're not all called to hold office in Christ church, we are called to be teachers and we need to learn to use our tongues. The Psalms over and over tell us how to use our speech. 
Sing to the Lord a new song. Give thanks. Praise the Lord. Call out to him. All of these are ways that we use our tongues in obedience to God. Our Old Testament passage says that there is a day that's coming when God will gather all his people in. It's that day that their speech will be pure. Sundays like this, when we gather, even if it can only be by Zoom, it's a little preview. It's like an appetizer before the full meal. This is a little taste. Sunday we'll know it fully, completely, purely. We'll be gathered with all of God's people. And there won't be anything wrong with our tongues anymore. Not only will the guilt of our sin be removed, but the impurity of it will be removed as well. It's corrupting influence will be gone. What a wondrous hope. And God has said that he's begun that process now. James closes with this thought in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A better translation, really, of the word that here is translated harvest is fruit. Most of the English translations actually translate the Greek word there, fruit. A fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In chapter one, James has said, we who have faith in Christ are the first fruit of his new creation. But not only are we fruit, we're also farmers. And other fruit comes from what God has been doing in us. What a wonderful hope. That Christ's redemption is so thorough. Not only does it transform us, it transforms us into something useful in his economy. So let us embrace that hope. And let us be a people who learn to use our tongues, who use our speech as instruments of peace. The biblical sense of peace. That which is right that which is good, that which is glorifying to God, which brings praise to him, that which causes us and our neighbors to flourish, will only have that wisdom, that skill at life, if we have faith in Christ and we trust him to transform us. So may we be such a people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that it's terrifying in its description of the power and problem of our tongue. But it's such good news to say that our tongues still have potential. This can only be by a miracle. This can only be because you make it possible. No human being can tame the tongue. But you've promised to transform us and to make our speech of pure speech. Father, we ask that you would help us to see that there is none greater than Jesus, that he is the true king, the true priest, the true prophet by whom you've spoken to us now. Help us to love him and to trust him and to obey him. And let this begin, we ask, with our speech. In Jesus' name, amen.